one out of five novel marketing listeners live outside of the United States. Many of them want to reach American readers. And no wonder there are more English language book buyers in the U.S. than in any other country. Not only are there a lot of American readers, but they have money to spend. America is the wealthiest country in the world overall and the eighth wealthiest country per capita. For some comparison, in 2022, Mississippi, the poorest state in the U.S., had a per capita GDP of $47,000. Japan that year had a per capita GDP of $45,000. Washington, D.C., our wealthiest, not technically a state area, has a per capita GDP of (laughs) $242,000. Compare that to Luxembourg, the country with the highest per capita GDP, which at $142,000. So for authors living overseas, America can seem like the land of plenty, where readers living in the seven cities of gold can't wait to read your book. But when those authors bring their books to the States, those books often struggle to sell. Winston Churchill once quipped that British and Americans are two people separated by a common language. But language is just the beginning. The biggest difference is cultural. America doesn't have one culture. America has 11 ethnogeographic regions, each with its own culture. The differences between these cultures can be as profound as the difference between Aberdeen and London or between British Columbia and Quebec. Knowing how Americans are different from each other culturally can help you craft more interesting and more believable American characters if you're writing fiction, and it's also key to crafting marketing messages that resonate with American book buyers. This episode is critical for any author wanting to take advantage of regional targeting for their advertising. If you're wondering how to make your ads different in one part of the country than the other, you've got to know the differences between the American cultural regions. As you'll soon learn, these cultures are very different from each other, and I can't think of a single American author who's been able to write a book with cross-cultural appeal in all 11 cultures. And if American writers can't do it, you're not going to be able to pull it off either. But don't worry, there are enough American readers where you don't need to reach them all. And Americans of all stripes are willing to read books by foreign authors. It's not uncommon to see foreign authors topping the American bestseller lists, especially authors from the UK. I feel like the bestseller lists always have at least one slot just for UK authors and then another slot for authors more generally. And many of these, quote, American nations, unquote, are still as populous as the old country. Yankeedom, for instance, has a population of around 59 million people, which uh, compares to 67 million people in the UK. If you aim in between two targets, you'll miss them both. So the key to writing for American readers is knowing what kind of American readers you're trying to reach. So what are those 11 American cultures and how do you know which ones will be the most interested in your book? We'll find out in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest running book marketing podcast in the world. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is a show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a living writing books worth talking about. And I'll say many Americans are only vaguely aware of the different cultures here in America. So if you live in the States and have always been curious about the difference between the Midwest and the Deep South, you'll likely find this episode very interesting. So this isn't just for listeners around the world. It's also for you, the American listener who's curious about Americans in other parts of America. And I will warn you. If you see every person as unique snowflake and hate cultural generalizations, you will find this episode very triggering. (laughs) So resist your inner teenage boy in trying to find one exception to try to disprove a general observation. Obviously, we're talking about cultural generalities, not about universal truths. And we're going to be talking about prevailing cultures in this episode, not subcultures. And I will say, targeting a specific subculture is a really savvy strategy. It's just not one I'm going to be talking about in this episode. (laughs) In this episode, I'm going to focus on the prevailing cultures in each region. And American cultural anthropology is a whole field of study, and I will just be scratching the surface here. (laughs) If you want to learn more, I recommend the book American Nations by Colin Woodward. And I also recommend some videos by Rudyard Lynch that I'll link to in the blog version of this episode. Different anthropologists use different terms for these regions, but I'm going to be using Colin Woodard's American Nation 
terms. So this isn't stuff I created. I'm really leaning heavily on Colin Woodard's book. In fact, I reread that entire book in preparation for this episode. And while I'm giving disclaimers, let's talk about class. So I'll be focusing on ethnogeographic differences in this episode rather than class differences. And the differences between the classes in the United States are likely similar to where you're from, just less so. Most Americans don't really have much of a class identity. In fact, I suspect many Americans would struggle to explain the difference between class and wealth. <laughs> I didn't understand it myself until I had an upper-class Brit explain to me that someone from England can be both poor and from the upper class. It kind of blew my American mind. <laughs> this is perhaps the first general American cultural observation that we should talk about. Class is not really a thing here the way that it is in Europe. Most Americans assume that class and wealth are the same thing, and the highest correlation between wealth and Americans is age. So the older someone is, the wealthier they tend to be, as I've talked about in my episode, How to Thrive as an Author in Your Twilight Years. According to the United States Federal Reserve, the median net worth of Americans over the age of 75 is around a quarter million dollars. And according to the Fed, the people under the age of 35 have a median net worth of just $12,000. So there's a massive discrepancy between the poor and the old in terms of wealth. And so class doesn't work quite the same way, and wealth even doesn't work quite the same way. You don't have people inheriting wealth the same way that they do in Europe. America was founded by a lot of second sons who didn't inherit the estate back in the old country. And so they took their small allowance and tried to make a life for themselves here. <laughs> and the custom in most of America is to share the inheritance equally between children. The result is that you don't have that same kind of dynastic family wealth that you'll find in Europe. John D. Rockefeller may have once been the wealthiest person in the world, but that was over 100 years ago, and each generation his wealth gets divided up between his various descendants and sliced into smaller and smaller chunks. And if you look at the wealthiest people in America, the top of the list is all populated with, quote, new men, unquote. People like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Larry Ellison, Warren Buffett, and Larry Page, none of whom inherited their money. <laughs> they made new money the American way. So back to the class thing, you're not going to find class accents in the United States, like what you'll find in Australia, New Zealand, or the UK. Uh, you can't really tell what class someone is talking to them. And depending on what part of the country you're in, you may not even be able to tell what class they're in by what clothes they wear or what car they drive. <laughs> Here in Texas, I know multimillionaires who drive 30-year-old broke-down pickup trucks. They wear ratty jeans and talk in a regional Texas accent. There's nothing about them visually that will indicate that they're Texas rich. <laughs> on the East Coast, people are a little bit more likely to dress their class, but on the West Coast, people like Mark Zuckerberg, the eighth wealthiest person in America, is famous for walking around in jeans and a hoodie. The final cultural difference that I just want to talk about very briefly is the difference between urban and rural. Again, the difference between the countryside and the city is pretty similar around the English-speaking world. So as a general rule, cities are more progressive and rural areas are more conservative. Books popular in the city are less likely to be popular in small towns and vice versa. But this is likely the same where you live. It's Even in non-English European countries, this is the case. I've been seeing a lot in the news about protests of people from the countryside going into Paris to protest or traveling into Amsterdam to protest. So it's, it's very similar kind of tensions in the United States that you see in the rest of you know, Europe and the English-speaking world. And I should also say we'll be addressing politics a little bit in this episode. It's not the focus, but it will help you understand American politics a little bit better because there's a strong regional influence on politics. So if your goal is to avoid anything political, bail out now. <laughs> Back to the city thing. The U.S. has almost no Republican cities and almost no Democrat rural counties, for example. So the cities in red states are blue and the rural counties in blue states are red. So those state maps that you may see are a little bit misleading. If you look at a county map, it gives you, I think, a better picture of the differences in terms of politics. So with all of that said, let's talk about Tidewater and the Deep South. These are technically two different geographic regions. And let me give you a little bit of historical background. After the Royalists lost the English Civil War in 1651, many of them fled to the New World. Specifically, 
the lands around Virginia and Maryland. For the next century, the second sons of English nobility followed them into Tidewater and into the Deep South, where they could live that feudal lord life that they were otherwise disinherited from. The heraldic symbol for a second son is still on the South Carolina flag. So if you've ever wondered why South Carolina has a crescent moon on their flag, that's why. It's the sign of the second sons. And while distinct culturally, Tidewaters often joined at the hip with the Deep South, and Deep South culture is pushing into Tidewater. So as we go through these regions, you'll notice some of these are waxing and some of these are waning. So Tidewater is losing its unique culture to the Deep South, as is New Amsterdam to Yankeedom. But we'll get there eventually. If you want to explore the historical differences more, I really encourage you to read American Nations because I'm really trying to summarize here and not go into all of the nuances. Uh, so in terms of where the Deep South is, the Deep South is just south of Tidewater and it stretches from Atlanta in the east to Houston in the west. If you're looking at the map, this is the bottom right corner of the country. The Deep South started out as an extension of the Caribbean slave plantation economy. After America ended the slave trade in 1808, the Deep South started buying slaves from domestic sources. And so the result were that many slaves were sold down the river as slave lords in the Deep South were buying them up, which reduced the percentage of slaves by population in the rest of the country. So by the time we get to the Civil War, most of the American slaves were in the Deep South. There were still slave states in the North in the Civil War, but those states had very few actually enslaved people left because their owners had sold them down the river. In some places in the Deep South, enslaved Africans made up as much as 75% of the population. At the end of the Civil War, slavery was ended. And following that, the Deep South had generations of terrible racism. Uh, but there was a, a revival in the early 1900s and then a big religious movement in the 1950s to call Southerners to repent of racism. So historians will refer to this as the Civil Rights Movement. But it was primarily a religious movement led by religious figures like Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. So this was Christians calling fellow Christians to repent from racism, and the Deep South responded. And what started was 50 to 70 years of repentance from racism. And I would say that the South has taken greater strides than any other region to repent of that racism. It's not to say that the Deep South is free from racism, but from where I sit, as someone who doesn't live in the Deep South, I would say the Deep South has done more than the rest of the country. So, for example... The race riots in 1992, 2001, 2014 were not focused in cities in the Deep South. Neither were the most recent 2020 race riots. It wasn't cities like Atlanta and Houston that were burning. It was Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Yankeedom, and left coast cities like Portland and Seattle. If you look at the list of 40 people who died in the George Floyd protests, none of them were in Deep South cities. And this was an insurrection so intense that the Seattle government lost control of its own Capitol Hill for over a week. A breakaway country formed inside of the United States known as the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, or CHAZ. And I don't know how much play this got uh, in the media around the world, but uh, if you don't know about this, it's an interesting thing to study. And to give you some context, if you don't know the American map very well, Seattle is in the top left corner of the United States map. That's as far away as you can get from the Deep South, which is in the bottom right. Americans who've never visited the Deep South like to refer to it as the capital of American racism. But if you look at where the actual racial conflict is, especially over the last 20 or 30 years, you'll mostly find it in the rest of the country. Again, there's still some in the Deep South, but very little comparatively. And I suspect a big reason for this is because the Deep South is the most religious region in America. Southerners are the most likely to go to church, and many of them identify with their religion more than they identify with their race. This makes that person of a different ethnicity, a fellow brother in Christ, not someone to hate. And this can be hard to understand, especially by someone who views all of life as racial systems of oppression and race as their primary lens for which to interpret all things that are happening. But for a religious person, they just don't think that way. They interpret the world through a religious lens. And while we're talking about religion, let's take a pause and talk about religion. America is a fairly religious 
place compared to Europe and the rest of the English-speaking world. So New Hampshire, which is our least religious state, about 50% of people who never attend religious services. So compare that to 80% of Brits, 92% of Germans, 77% of Canadians, and 83% of Australians who never attend religious services. And remember, that's New Hampshire, which is our least religious state. So for some comparison, deep south Alabama, only 16% of people from Alabama say they never attend religious services. So this is important to understand when writing for Americans generally and Southerners specifically. While not all Americans are religious, Americans are more likely to be religious than the rest of the English-speaking world. So be careful not to offend anyone's religion in your writing unless you're ready to exclude them as potential readers. And also realize that America has a bunch of religions. Different regions have different religions that are dominant. And as I go through the different regions, I'll try to hit that. But real quickly, you know, you have Catholics in El Norte, Evangelicals in Alabama, Mormons in Utah, or Muslims in Michigan, for instance. So how do you write for Tidewater in the Deep South? First, I'll say readers in the Deep South are the least targeted by authors and publishers. They're also far less likely to go to the movies, partly because movies don't target them, than Americans on average, which makes them financially the most lucrative region. And so if you're ambivalent who to write to and you're just trying to make money, this is the first region I would recommend targeting. That's why I'm starting with them, because the fruit is the lowest hanging here. <laughs> Just realize that the Deep South is most hated by Yankeedom and the left coast, which are regions I haven't gotten to yet. And these regions see the Deep South as a racist backwater. And over the last couple of decades, there's been a concerted effort to villainize Southern accents in American media. So once you learn what a Southern accent sounds like, it will spoil many American movies as the twist at the end of the second act is that the helpful Southerner turned out to be evil the whole time. <laughs> Southern accent characters are typically portrayed in the media as either evil or stupid. And you'll often hear people from the Deep South complaining about, quote, the media, unquote. Southerners hate being portrayed as racist, evil, and stupid. When Florida's governor declared war on Disney, his support went up. <laughs> if you're outside the United States, that may seem crazy, right? Most foreigners see Disney as a family-friendly company. But in the Deep South, Disney is the media, which they see as having waged war against their culture for decades. And as an author, you are at risk of being seen as the media in the eyes of Southern readers. So my first tip for reaching these readers is to not make them the villains. It's cliche, and they are so done with being the villains. <laughs> Yankee them in the left coast. Readers there, on the other hand, love reading about Deep South villains because it makes them feel virtuous. They take pride in knowing that they're better than those backwater Southerners. So know who you're writing for. It's hard to write for both audiences. Readers in Tidewater and the Deep South want authors to write for them. Authors like Larry Correa, who I interviewed a few weeks ago, he targets Southerners and has seen incredible success selling millions and millions of copies. Now, interestingly, Larry is not from the Deep South. He's a far West Mormon, <laughs> but... He's made an effort to place his stories in the Deep South, and he makes an effort to be respectful to Southern culture and Southern religion. One, I'll point out that he's not a part of, <laughs> but by honoring those readers, the readers have honored him with their money. And as long as you respect their culture, they will read your books. If you wage a culture war against them, they will ignore you. And they're very sensitive to culture wars right now. <laughs> so they will ignore you very loudly <laughs> if you attack them. So in terms of like themes, I would say readers in the Deep South value courtesy, honor, and respect for authority. Now, the respect for authority is uh, relatively unique in the South. Uh, this is the one place in America that still has vestiges of European-style aristocracy. As you head west into greater Appalachia, the rugged individualists resist authority. And as you head north into the Midlands and Yankeedom, the people are more egalitarian. But in the Deep South, courtesy, manners, and hospitality are important. Hosts have certain societal obligations, as do guests. The Deep South takes taboos very seriously. And so what do I mean by taboos? Because this is really important if you're writing for a Deep South audience. And a good example of a cultural taboo is adult language. <laughs> Many Deep South readers find offensive language to be, well, offensive. 
The constant cuss words in movies, music, and TV grate on the ears of many Southerners. Some of them see the constant stream of impolite language as a culture war against their polite culture. If you want Deep South readers to like a fictional character, don't have that character cuss, and especially don't have that character cuss in front of a lady or a child. And if you want to make a character unlikable, if you want to make a Southern reader dislike your villain, well, that's a tool that you can use. <laughs> and so understand your audience. Also, when writing characters who swear, remember that many people in the Deep South believe God exists. They believe Jesus is alive. And when you use Jesus Christ as a swear word, it is deeply offensive. Even one expletive is enough for some Southern readers to avoid your book. Not all. Again, there's a lot of variety here. And that's not to say that Southerners never cuss, but there are rules about when and where it's appropriate. So it's taboo to cuss in front of the other sex or in front of children. A Deep South man might cuss while hunting or with the guys on the golf course, but he wouldn't do it in front of his wife or his kids. So that is the Deep South and Tidewater. There's a lot more I could say about that culture, but we still have nine other cultures to visit. So let's travel west into the ethno-geographic region known as Greater Appalachia. So by population, Greater Appalachia is tied as one of the largest ethno-geographic regions in the United States. It's also one of the least well-known by outsiders. So while what foreigners know about the Deep South is often wrong, many don't know about Greater Appalachia at all. <laughs> Some outsiders lump Greater Appalachia in with the Deep South because they tend to vote for the same political candidates, but from a cultural perspective, that's a big mistake. Greater Appalachia stretches from West Virginia in the east through the Great Smoky Mountains and down into the Texas Hill Country. Residents of this region value individual sovereignty and personal honor. We distrust authority, collective action, and interdependence. We don't want to join your club, and the harder you try to make us, the more we will dig our feet in. <laughs> my ancestry on my dad's side comes from Greater Appalachia, and Austin, Texas is in Greater Appalachia. Now, while the Deep South was settled by Norman aristocrats from England, uh, the people in Greater Appalachia came from the war-ravaged borderlands of Northern Ireland and the Scottish Lowlands. So our ancestors were Scotch-Irish warriors, raiders, and brigands. <laughs> William Wallace just might have more statues in Greater Appalachia than he does in Scotland. <laughs> so we really liked the movie Braveheart. Back in the 1860s, the Celtic Appalachians couldn't decide who they hated more, the moral crusading Saxons of Yankeedom or the aristocratic Normans of the Deep South. So this is the one ethnogeographic region that split and fought on both sides of the American Civil War. For a Celt, not knowing which side to root for is no reason not to fight the war. <laughs> and for the greater Appalachians, it really was a war of brother versus brother. Whereas the Yankees of the North and the deep Southerners of the South were far less likely to actually meet a family member on the battlefield. That was not the case for the Celtic descendants in greater Appalachia. America has one of the biggest militaries in the world, and it's able to do this without a draft or mandatory conscription, due in no small part to the fact that greater Appalachians are willing to volunteer to go to war. So I personally know dozens of Appalachians who, at their own expense, are geared and trained themselves to defend their families and their neighbors. When Appalachians hear that the government will provide not only the guns, but the ammo too, they race to sign up. <laughs> For example, when President James K. Polk asked Tennessee for 2,600 volunteers to fight in the Mexican-American War, 30,000 Tennesseans answered the call. So Tennessee has been known as the volunteer state ever since. A few years ago, the U.S. Army shifted its marketing to target Yankee and left coast values, and the result has been a drop in enlistments because they failed to boost coastal recruitment to make up for losses in greater Appalachia. The United States Marines, on the other hand, keeps honor and duty as its central recruiting tenants, and it has had no trouble hitting its recruiting goals. So honor appeals to Appalachians, and duty appeals to the Deep South. Greater Appalachia is also the capital of American gun culture. So the ultimate symbol of Appalachian self-reliance is the firearm. 
In greater Appalachia, it's not uncommon to see a gun-shaped sign at a store, often above the cash register, that says, We don't call 911, we call 357. This is quintessential Appalachian self-sufficiency. To illustrate this, I want to share with you an invite a greater Appalachian sent me for an event his church was hosting. Saturday morning, we will have our fall pancake and pow-pow event. Activities include breakfast, devotional, breaking down and cleaning guns, spending time on the target range, and shooting clays. Firearm experts will be present to help the gun cleaning and instructions and supervise on the range. And I imagine this mixing of gun culture and religion might be surprising or offensive to Americans from other regions and pretty shocking to non-Americans, especially considering that this is an all-ages event. But in greater Appalachia, this is the culture. Again, not universally, but it's not uncommon. So to appeal to these readers, get the guns right. If you have a gun in your book, some of your readers in greater Appalachia will have fired that exact gun, and many of them will have fired something similar to it. You know, Maybe it was while they served in the military, or maybe they own that gun. And so they will know if you get the details wrong. And I realize if you live overseas, it's not easy to fire a gun yourself. But you can use sensitivity readers to help with the details. And if you live in the United States, it's not that hard. You go to a range, you can rent a gun, and you can fire it. And it costs 50 bucks, 100 bucks, and it will dramatically increase your awareness, your fluency, and your accuracy. Another element of greater Appalachian culture is rugged individualism. So greater Appalachians are descended from Celts who were persecuted for hundreds of years in the British Isles. They were persecuted by the Saxons, and later they were persecuted by the Normans. And they believe that life is unfair, (laughs) and that there is little that anyone can do to change the fairness of life. And instead, they believe in honor and self-sufficiency. And because of this high value of individual sovereignty among Appalachians, it's really hard to do things like collective bargaining. So they would say something like, we're not all in this together. I am a sovereign individual, and I don't want no union taking my money and telling me what I can and cannot do. Even union-friendly car companies like Volkswagen have failed to get unions off the ground in places like Tennessee. And part of the problem is the unions use Yankeedom language and phrases like fairness and equality. And these values don't appeal to workers who don't think those things exist. If I were a union organizer in Tennessee, I wouldn't talk about getting a fair deal from management. I would talk about how the deal from management was a dishonorable disgrace that mocked the sacrifice of hardworking and honest workers. And because of this strong aversion to labor unions in greater Appalachia, American manufacturing has been slowly moving from Yankeedom in the Midlands to non-unionized Greater Appalachia. Uh, Brand new car factories are being built in places like Texas and Tennessee, while Michigan and upstate New York are becoming rust belts filled with abandoned factories. And while the poorest places in the United States are still in Greater Appalachia, especially places like West Virginia, this region is not nearly the poor backwater it once was. It's still poor, but it's one of the fastest growing economic regions inside of the United States. So how do you write for Greater Appalachia readers? Well, if you're writing a military-themed book, this is the place I would start marketing it. If you've got Space Marines, Greater Appalachians are ready to read about your Space Marines. But it's not just military stuff. I I don't want to characterize ourselves so simply. So one thing you might try is to honor the spirit of independence and self-sufficiency. Narratives that celebrate themes of independence, self-reliance, and resilience are likely to resonate with readers here in Greater Appalachia. Have your fictional characters face challenges that require them to rely on their own skills, wits, or inner strength. Let a character pull himself up by his own bootstraps. (laughs) Greater Appalachians love to read that kind of story. Stories could also explore the tensions between this independent spirit and the encroachment of external authorities or modern societal demands. So, for example, a character from Greater Appalachia may hear of a mass shooting and go and buy another gun to protect his family from a similar shooting in the future. While a character from Yankeedom might call for everyone to collectively give up their guns so there could be no more mass shootings. This is why, by the way, the gun debate is so intractable because it cuts at core cultural values that go back in the case of the Appalachians, thousands of years. The Yankees who want to take collective action are unwilling to kill the Appalachians to take away their guns, 
and the Appalachians, who value self-reliance and independence, are unwilling to give up their guns except from their, quote, cold, dead hands, unquote. So while uh, the gun illustration is useful to kind of illustrate the difference between regions and cultures, I would avoid it specifically because Americans have made up their minds on gun control at this point, and they really don't like to hear Europeans chime in on domestic politics. As Europeans comment on American politics, the Americans start to put on three-cornered hats and put cotton in their ears. <laughs> so just keep that in mind. But hopefully this kind of gives you an idea of the difference between that kind of collective spirit uh, that you'll find in the Midlands and especially in Yankeedom and the rugged individualism that you'll find in places like Greater Appalachia and the Far West. So now let's travel south to El Norte, <laughs> which is the border of Mexico. So this is actually the oldest of the ethnogeographic nations, and it's also one that's often misunderstood. El Norte is a strip that runs along the border on both sides, both the U.S. border and the Mexican border, from California in the west all the way to the Gulf Coast in the east. Its big cities are San Antonio, El Paso, and San Diego. And El Norte is Hispanic and Catholic. So while many people in El Norte trace their ancestry to Mexico, they're not really Mexican in any meaningful sense. And you're like, well, why not? Well, because there is a vast desert between Mexico City and El Norte. And before the railroad was invented, so for centuries, there was very little contact between the Mexican heartland and its periphery. Years would sometimes go by between caravans from Mexico City and its far-flung northern frontier. So the result of this was that instructions from Spain, France, and Mexico, the various regions that colored this region in on their maps saying we control it, they would send demands and commands to these areas. And by the time they crossed the desert, they were received as suggestions. <laughs> Whether it was California, New Mexico, Arizona, or Texas, the imperial authorities were far away. And meanwhile, the Navajo, the Comanche, and the Apache, which were arguably the three most feared American tribes in North America, might be just over the hill. So when Santa Ana took over power in Mexico and suspended the Constitution, Texas was not the only region to declare independence from Mexico. The, almost this whole area declared independence, and Santa Ana had to put down revolts in California, New Mexico, and Nuevo Leon before he came to Texas and failed. And, and don't get a Texan started about that story, because he'll tell it over and over again. And the revolt against Mexico was not just the greater Appalachians that were revolting. It was also the Norteños and the Tejanos that were already here that were also revolting. So one thing you may not know if you live outside of the United States is that America's cowboy culture actually comes from El Norte. Cowboy 10-gallon hats are adapted from sombreros. Words like rodeo, lasso, lariat, chaps, bronco, and ranch all originate from Spanish words like ranchero, lazo, and chaparraras. I think I'm butchering the pronunciation of that. That's why we shortened it to chaps. <laughs> Even today, if you see a man wearing muddy boots and a cowboy hat in Texas, there's a good chance he's a Tejano. The meme of the American cowboy comes from El Norte originally. And while cowboy culture got its start in El Norte, it extended both north and west. Another thing about uh, El Norte culture is community and family bonds. So with their isolation from the Mexican heartland and their proximity to danger, the Norteños survived as families working together. Your story about a rebellious teenager may not resonate here as it would on the left coast. In El Norte, your family is a bastion to survive a very dangerous world. And they would say, we're all in this together, like the Yankees. But by we, they don't mean the community, they mean the family. So Norteños have an independent culture, but not an individualistic one, which, which is an interesting kind of hybrid of Yankee culture and Appalachian culture, but it's not a hybrid in the sense that it's derived from those cultures. It emerged on its own and earlier. Familial relationships and community connections often play a significant role in Hispanic culture. 
Stories that focus on family dynamics, community, solidarity, and intergenerational relationships might resonate strongly here. Another thing that's important to understand about El Norte culture is that it's a borderland between two powerful cultural nations. A comparison, perhaps, for a European to understand is that it's like the Alsace-Lorraine region that's kind of a hybrid between French culture and German culture. Uh, the people here are bilingual and bicultural. Uh, one example of this is the cuisine. Tex-Mex is a combination of spicy Mexican dishes covered in German cheese. Chili con queso is as close to fondue as it is to anything from Mexico. And if you haven't had Austin queso, you're really in for a treat. I encourage you to try it as soon as you get a chance to, to taste some Austin food. El Norte culture extends to both sides of the border. And it really blends American and Mexican cultures in some interesting ways. In fact, the national border cuts right through one of the biggest Norteño cities. So the only thing keeping El Paso and Juarez from being a single city is an international border. The border literally cuts the city in half, kind of like East Berlin and West Berlin. And the combined metro has a population of 3.4 million people. So compare that to Chicago, which has a city population of 2.7 million. So stories that explore themes of dual identity, migration, and cultural exchange could resonate here. And, you know, while many Nortenos are bilingual, some of them are stronger in one language than the other. Right? Some Nortenos cannot speak to their own grandmas because they don't know enough Spanish, while others really struggle to read English and prefer to read Spanish. So one marketing tip if you want to reach El Norte readers is to offer a Spanish language version of your book for those readers who prefer to read in Spanish. And perhaps the most important thing that you need to realize when writing for Norteños is not to insult their religion. The greatest defender of the indigenous people of Latin America from the predations of the conquistadors was the Catholic Church. Franciscan friars often placed themselves between the conquistadors' whip and the indigenous back. And the Spanish and later Mexican political leaders got so frustrated with the Catholic Church that they initiated intense persecutions from time to time. In 1926, for example, over 4,000 Catholic priests were either killed or exiled. And the Norteños did not forsake their religion then, and they won't find your anti-religious tone appealing now. A Norteño friend of mine told me that when he does the sign of the cross, he crosses his fingers to remember the time when it was illegal to show a crucifix. And after crossing himself, he kisses his fingers to remember all of the Catholic priests who died in the persecutions. So, if you want to appeal to these readers, do not insult the Catholic Church, Jesus, the saints, or the Blessed Virgin Mary. Your condescending, anti-religious tone is a big turnoff for these readers. So, that is El Norte. Now, let's travel back east to the other Catholic ethnogeographic region in the United States of New France. So, when Thomas Jefferson brought the Louisiana Purchase from Napoleon in 1803, that purchase came with the geopolitically most important city in all of North America, New Orleans. So why is New Orleans more important than New York or Washington, D.C. geopolitically? Well, it's because whoever controls New Orleans controls the connection between the navigable Mississippi River, one of the largest navigable rivers in the world, and the world ocean. So this is a city kind of like Istanbul in terms of its geopolitical strategic importance. And the thing that's interesting about New Orleans is that it was already populated by French speakers when Thomas Jefferson purchased it. <laughs> so some of those French speakers were from France and some of them were from Canada. So there's an interesting shared culture between French Cajuns down south and their Quebec cousins up north. In fact, when I say cousins, I don't mean that figuratively. I mean that literally. <laughs> And the American government allowed the French Cajuns to keep their culture, their laws, their religion, and their language. When I took my business law class in college, my professor used the phrase, except in Louisiana, about a dozen times each class. <laughs> so while the rest of the United States runs on English common law, which goes back to the misty past of England when King Arthur and his knights were running around, Louisiana, on the other hand, runs on a version of the Napoleonic Code which is derived from Emperor Justinian's 6th century codification of Roman law, which goes all the way back to the Oracle of Delphi, giving the Romans 
the 12 tablets and the misty past of Roman history. So these are very different legal systems. Louisiana has hectares rather than acres, parishes rather than counties, and innumerable other legal differences. The land is also different in that it is not actually land. (laughs) Much of Louisiana is a marshy swamp filled with alligators and mosquitoes. So, so many mosquitoes. It has marshes, bogs, and swamps that have always intrigued readers in that they're not fully one thing or the other. There's something, from a fictional perspective, really fascinating about bogs. Not all of Louisiana is bogs, but there's a lot of swamps and marshes there. And one thing you need to know about the French is that they love their language. So given the strong French cultural heritage, consider sprinkling some French phrases or regional dialects, especially into the dialogue, could add to the authenticity. Unlike Quebec, most people in Louisiana speak English as their primary language. They might learn French in school. Some of them may still speak a version of French, but they didn't hold on to French as a language the way that people up in French Canada did. Of the nations, this one is the smallest, making up only about 1 to 4 million Americans. And not all of Louisiana is New France. Northern Louisiana is in the Deep South. So this is a relatively small but very interesting enclave. And one that I would look more into if you're wanting to add some flavor to your American characters. Because pulling an American character from the Cajun region of Louisiana will force you to acknowledge some of America's more idiosyncratic cultures and can make for a really interesting character. And I will say this isn't the only cultural enclave. There's some others that I won't go into. One is in southern Florida, which is a cultural enclave of Caribbean culture and Hawaii, which is a cultural enclave of greater Polynesian culture. Those are really cool cultures to explore, but just ones I don't have time to talk about today and ones that I'm not as well familiar with. In American nations, Helen Woodard skipped Hawaiian culture altogether (laughs) and didn't talk about it. There's a great podcast, I will say, Legends of the Pacific, if you want to familiarize yourself with Polynesian culture. One great way to do that is through their fairy tales and ghost stories. And we'll have a link to Legends from the Pacific in the show notes. Now let's travel north into the far west. While the United States is the third most populous country in the world, a big chunk of America is still relatively empty. New York City has a bigger population than all of the mountain time zone combined. The Far West is mostly empty for two reasons. First, there's not enough rainfall to make farming profitable in most of this region. And secondly, the U.S. federal government still owns most of the land. And by most, I mean most. 80% of Nevada is owned by the federal government. Since people can't own the land, they have no incentive to improve it. For some comparison, the U.S. federal government owns 2% of Texas. Texans have a huge financial incentive to improve their own land because they own it. In Texas, it's not uncommon to drive past a cornfield spotted with oil derricks, wind turbines, and smart irrigation. That's a lot of money put into improving the land. But in Nevada, the government owns it, and so why would I spend my money to improve the government's land? And of 20% of Nevada that's privately held, a lot of that land is owned by massive and sometimes foreign corporations. While Texans can go weeks without interacting with or even thinking about the federal government, people in the far west have to deal with the federal government all the time. For example, ranchers don't own the land that their cows graze, and the conflicts related to this almost sparked a shooting war 10 years ago when armed ranchers faced off with federal agents. If a single person had poor trigger discipline in that standoff, hundreds of Americans would have died, and it could have set off a full civil war. The conflict was resolved peacefully and likely didn't make the news in Europe, But it's no surprise that the Far West has a deep distrust for both the federal government and large corporations. So you can think of this as cowboy culture, but with a secular twist. The Far West is filled with wilderness people. For example, some Far West states don't have a single major city. The largest city in Wyoming has only 65,000 people. That's less than my suburb in Austin. The Far West has a unique checkerboard religious pattern that's really unique to the Far West. So the Far West includes 
religious states like Utah, which is the most religious state in the Union, where Mormonism is the most common religion. But it's also home of some of the least religious states, places like Montana and Nevada. Far West is the home of a secular liberalism that Americans call libertarianism. So think of libertarianism as European-style liberalism, but with less socialism and more guns. For example, Colorado, the most populous Far West state, was the first to legalize recreational marijuana. This was despite the fact that marijuana was illegal at the national level. They just chose to ignore the federal law. And if you know anything about the Far West, ignoring federal law is kind of their thing. (laughs) Of the 11 nations, the Far West has the lowest rates of terminally online people. If you live in Wyoming, it's not hard to find places with no cell service, and it's hard to find decent internet. There are small towns here popular with visiting celebrities because many of the residents don't know who the celebrities are, and the ones who do know don't care. (laughs) So it's very disconnected culturally from the current thing, whatever the current thing happens to be. The Far West is filled with deadly wonder. So think of Far West as the New Zealand of America. It's hard to walk past the vast, beautiful emptiness without imagining elves living in those forests and dwarves digging in those mountains. There are few places on earth with the kind of untouched natural beauty as the Far West. But readers here also realize that that nature is trying to kill them. In North Dakota, the winters can get down to 30 below zero. And one year, it got down to negative 60 degrees. That is Antarctic levels of cold, and so cold, it doesn't matter whether it's Fahrenheit or Celsius. Uh, So, in some ways, it's kind of like the outback in Australia, where they know this is dangerous, but also know that it is beautiful. I imagine that Man Against Nature plots, themes of exploration, wonder, and solitude might resonate with these readers. The dichotomy of something that is both beautiful, enticing, yet deadly could be some fun themes to explore. And it's no surprise that this is the capital of American fantasy and sci-fi. Brandon Sanderson, Orson Scott Card, Larry Correa, Christopher Polini, and Dan Wells all are from Far West, which is really surprising, especially considering how sparsely populated this region is. There's not a lot of people here, and yet many of America's famous fantasy authors are. So now let's travel even farther west into the left coast. This is the farthest you can get. So you go any west from the left coast and you're falling into the Pacific Ocean. The left coast is a narrow strip that goes from northern California up into Oregon and Washington. This is a very narrow strip. If you're on the left coast and start driving east... After a few hours, you will feel like you're driving into an an entirely different cultural country as you enter the far west. Snoqualmie Pass, you could say, is a portal between a world of innovative progressives of Seattle and the rugged individualists of Spokane. Originally colonized by settlers from Yankeedom, the left coast shares a lot of cultural and social values with Yankeedom. While less religious, they share many of Yankeedom's collective attitudes and moral crusading. There's so much cultural exchange to this day that people in Yankeedom and the left coast often refer to the rest of the country as flyover country because they just fly over all those different regions in between the coasts. For someone on the left coast, it's not enough to be privately virtuous. They must be seen as virtuous by those around them. For example, it's common to see yard signs in people's front yards extolling their household virtues. The signs say things like, in this house, we believe science is real, that love is love, and that no human is illegal, etc. They want the brands that they wear to extol their virtues and for their food to be sustainable and environmentally friendly. From a marketing perspective, one effective way to reach left coast readers is to give them a vehicle to feel morally superior to others. The left coast values openness to new ideas, innovation, progress, and the environment. It is arguably the wealthiest ethnogeographic region on a per capita basis, but also home to some of the most intense income inequality. Many of the left coast poor live in slums and tent cities, and the wealthy left coasters refer to their homeless neighbors as zombies. Of all the American nations, the left coast is the most terminally online and the most with it on the current cultural thing. If you want to write for these readers, you need to make sure that your social media profile supports the cause of the day. 
They are also the most well-served when it comes to the current media landscape. They fund or make most of the music, movies, and TV shows in the United States. And they make that content mostly for themselves. They're the most likely to go to the movies, the most likely to enjoy the popular music. And while they have money to spend on books, they're happy with the authors they already have. So realize that you face a lot of competition when writing for the left coast. So let's hop on one of those flights and fly over flyover country and visit New Netherland, a.k.a. New York City and Newark, New Jersey. So the east coast of the United States was primarily settled by British islanders. Everywhere that is, save for New York City, which was initially established by Dutch traders. So New York City's original name was New Amsterdam. And the result is that New York City is just different in deeply fundamental ways. It has an entirely different culture from what New Yorkers refer to as upstate New York, which is part of the ethnogeographic region known as Yankeedom. New Netherland is centered in New York City and extends into New Jersey and that kind of immediate metro area. And this is geographically the smallest of the American nations, and it's the one Europeans are probably the most likely to visit when visiting the United States. But while it's small in terms of acreage, New Netherland makes up for it in population density. So depending on how you count, there's between 17 and 20 million people in this cultural nation, which compares with Australia's population of about 23 million people. So historically, New Netherland is known as a materialistic and tolerant culture. They don't really care about your religion, your morality, your race, or your whatever. The only color they care about is that sweet, sweet green. <laughs> At least this is the stereotype. And New York City is the financial capital of the country. It's where the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ, it's where most of the banks are located. And its culture historically was organized around making money. That's what New Amsterdam was there for. It was a trading colony to make money. If you travel north in, from New York into Yankeedom, the values will shift from money primary value to a social justice primary value. And as you travel south into Tidewater and into the Deep South, the value shifts from money to honor. But I will say that New York seems to be losing their culture a little bit. And over time, the Yankeedom culture seems to be kind of pushing into the city. New Netherlanders rejected native some Donald Trump, who really represents that New York money, money, money culture, but they did not care for him. And just in the last decade, New York City publishers stopped publishing books of authors they disagree with politically, even if those books were going to make a lot of money. That decision would have blown the minds of New Yorkers in the 1880s or even 1980s who were all about making that cheddar. So we'll see if that cultural blending of Yankeedom holds. But often, culturally, Yankeedom and New Netherlands, they used to be very distinct, but there's a lot of blending that's happening. And all of these regions are blending with each other to a certain degree. And you'll find neighborhoods of immigrants from one part of the country who have the values of where they came from. There's a neighborhood here in Austin, Texas called New California, for instance, that might as well be a little enclave of Californian culture. So let's talk about Yankeedom, a.k.a. New England and the Midwest. So if we travel north from New York City, we'll enter what Woodard calls Yankeedom in his book, American Nations. Uh, this includes New England states like Maine and Massachusetts and Vermont all the way west into states like Michigan, Illinois and Minnesota. So New England was settled by Puritans, what we would call today religious radicals. They were industrious and inventive, and they had a ton of babies. There were several generations where the average, the average number of children that Puritan women had was 10. 10 children per woman. A few generations of that, and soon you have enough people to fill a continent. And so that's how New Englanders were able to push all the way to Minnesota. And this is the ethnogeographic nation that my mother came from. So I have a little bit of connection with Yankee culture. The Puritan Yankees were on a religious quest to make the world a better place. They believed that God would judge a region or a city for the behavior of the individuals. So it was everyone's duty to mind each other's business to ensure divine blessings. And so while most Yankees have since turned away from Puritanism, they have not stopped their moral crusading. The seeds of the modern social justice movement were planted centuries ago. While most Yankees don't believe in divine retribution, their collective zeal in fighting things like climate change 
makes a lot more sense once you understand the culture that they came from. It's not enough for Yankees to cut their own carbon emissions. They need to make sure that you cut your carbon footprint as well. Otherwise, we'll all have bad weather. Over time, Puritans lost their religious fanaticism, like I said, and eventually their religion altogether. So this, of all of the nations, is the least religious of the nations, where people are the least likely to attend church. So how do you write for readers in Yankeedom and New Netherlands? Well, Yankeedom places a very high emphasis on education. In Massachusetts, which is one of the states in New Yankeedom, one out of three residents have an advanced college degree. This is the highest rate in the 50 states. And many of America's famous inventors came from here. Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, George Westinghouse, uh, the meme of the tinkering American inventor all come from this region. So if you want to compete for these readers, your craft needs to be top notch. Yankees don't suffer fools and they don't suffer bad writers. Uh, the New York Times has an editorial board that excludes books if the editors of the New York Times don't feel that the book is well written enough. And they'll exclude it if they don't feel like it conforms with Yankee values. There was a famous court case about this back in the 1980s. I'll link to the Wikipedia page about it. But it's editorial commentary. It's not actually a list of the best-selling books because not everyone's included because not everyone is, quote, good enough, unquote. Yankeedom also values community and the common good over individualism. So America's branding internationally plays big on the rugged individualist. And that's true here in Texas, but it's not true in Yankeedom. Back in the day, the wealthy in the Deep South hired tutors, but the wealthy in Yankeedom created the first free public schools. In fact, most of America's oldest universities are from Yankeedom because of this communal orientation. Yankees mind each other's business because we're, quote, all in this together, unquote. And this attitude causes conflict with people from the other nations who value individualism. The individualists who want the collectivists to, quote, mind their own business, unquote, is very common. This conflict runs very deep. And there are parts of the country where the word Yankee is always preceded by an expletive. <laughs> so keep this in mind as you craft conflict between American characters. So the Yankees see themselves as virtuous crusaders making the world a better place. That is not necessarily how other regions see the Yankees. Yankees also value fairness and equality. So stories that feature community efforts, social welfare, or characters who sacrifice for the common good will likely resonate here, as well as like themes of social justice, communal well-being, progressive politics, and fairness. Uh, that, that word fairness is a really high value in Yankee world. And they very much dislike inequality. If things are unequal, that really bothers them. <laughs> so uh, keep that in mind when writing for this culture. So now let's talk about the Midlands. Stretching from Philadelphia in the east to Kansas City in the west, the Midlands were settled initially by Quakers, a nonviolent religious sect. They were also settled by Germans wanting to be left alone. In the early days, the Germans in Pennsylvania really wanted to be left alone and were completely uninvolved in politics and still speaking German. Quintessentially moderates, the Quakers, unlike the Puritans, were not on a moral crusade to make the world a better place. They also didn't have or believe in the strict social hierarchies of the Deep South. They wanted their good works to speak for themselves. The Amish and Mennonites originated in the Midlands. These groups mostly keep to themselves and have become the focus of an entire genre of fiction. So uh, Amish fiction is very hot and has been for almost two decades now. The kind of intense, violent stories that might appeal to readers in greater Appalachia are less likely to appeal in the Midlands. <laughs> and some Midlanders would sooner die than take up arms to harm another human. So the meme of the conscientious objector comes from the Midlands. The quintessential Midlander is someone like Benjamin Franklin, who was a diplomat who valued thrift, hard work, and personal virtue. In fact, Benjamin Franklin worked tirelessly to keep the other cultural nations of the United States from declaring war on each other and getting them to work together. So he has some very famous speeches in American history that were key in helping bind the nation together because these different regions, they have very different values, very different origins and have often been in conflict. <laughs> and it's the Midlands who are often the peacemakers. If America was a family of siblings, 
The Deep South and Yankeedom are the high drama siblings squabbling to pull the other siblings to join their side. And the Midlands is like the quiet, overlooked middle child who works hard, follows the rules, and wants to have nothing to do with all that drama. <laughs> when asked to intervene, they, like Franklin, can see the issue from both sides and often have frustratingly, at least for the other nations, nuanced views. <laughs> so Midlander culture values humility, kindness, simplicity, and tolerance. Their political party is not a big part of their identity. They don't want to read authors they see as obnoxious jerks. So getting into political fights online may turn these readers off, even if they agree with your political arguments, because they don't want the drama <laughs> and they don't want the meanness. The Midlands have been a swinging region in American politics for centuries. American presidential candidates spend a disproportionate amount of time in Midland states like Iowa, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. There's an old Shaker song that I feel really captures Midland's culture. And since the song itself is in the public domain, but all of the recordings are copyrighted, the best way for me to share it with you is to sing it. This is Simple Gifts by Joseph Brackett. Tis a gift to be simple, tis a gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where you ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we shan't be ashamed. To turn, turn will be our delight. Till by turning, turning, we come round right. If I were to explain Midland culture with an object, it would be an Amish-made chair, entirely devoid of ornamentation or frills, but full of simple, functional, well-made wood, <laughs> built to last for lifetimes. Compare this with like a Victorian chair with all kinds of delicate artistry. When you hear people talk about America's heartland, they often are referring to the Midlands. This is the one region with no rival regions. From the left coast to the deep south to Yankeedom, no one hates the Midlands. It's our heartland. It's the honest simplicity we long for and yet struggle to achieve amidst all of our political trauma. So how do you write for the Midlands? Well, instead of focusing on larger-than-life characters, consider highlighting the heroism in everyday acts. Showcase the resilience and determination of regular people. The classic Midland hero is Johnny Appleseed, who traveled through the Midlands planting apple trees, sharing his religion, and encouraging people to avoid extravagance and embrace simple living. And as we talk about these cultural regions, I want to remind you that culture changes. No culture is frozen, and I feel like American culture changes more than most because we have so many influences from so many places. For example, New England went from a place that used to burn witches to one that has a big pagan festival every year to celebrate witchcraft. With the fall of Puritanism came a fascination with darkness. Edgar Allan Poe, Stephen King, and H.P. Lovecraft the most influential American horror authors are all from New England. And one big impact on American culture is social media. Americans are spending more time online and less interacting with their neighbors. The result is that the regional differences are diminishing somewhat and the ideological differences are being emphasized. And this is particularly true amongst young people who spend the most amount of time interacting online rather than with neighbors. If keeping track of these American cultures feels overwhelming, I have an easy shortcut, and that is pick one reader to be your Timothy and write to thrill that reader. By focusing on the one, you will get his whole culture included for free. This is one of the reasons why writing for a Timothy is so much more effective than writing for a demographic. Because that real person has a real cultural influence. And if you can speak to that culture, if the music of your story is in tune with the music of their heart and the music of their people, it will be music they will long to listen to and recommend to their friends. And if you want help with that, I have an entire episode just on how to find and write for Timothy. And if you don't know who Timothy is, 
you really should give that episode a listen. I feel like it's one of my most important episodes that I've ever recorded. I do want to hear what you think. If you have exceptions or disagreements, you're welcome to post at authormedia.social is the place to do it. So authormedia.com is the home for this podcast and the blog versions of this podcast. Authormedia.social is the social network that I created for authors like you to not just comment on episodes like this one, but also to connect with other authors. There's a space for general author discussion, a space to talk about platform and promotion tips, a, a section to talk about publishing. If you're planning to get published independently, and want to pick the brains of other authors who published independently, this is a really good board to post to. And people typically get answers within minutes. So if you're ever stuck publishing your book, you really should go to the publishing board on authormedia.social. There's also a craft board where people can talk about writing and how to write better and editing, that sort of thing. There's a the popular job board where if you're looking for an editor or a web designer or a cover designer, you can connect with professionals inside the authormedia.social community. And if you're looking for work, you can post what you do there. I don't charge anything or police this at all. So you're an adult. It's a free country. And this is your place if you're looking for work to hang your shingle. There's a collaboration board if you're looking for a co-author or someone to write a guest post for your blog. There's a celebrations board where you can celebrate your book launch. So if you want to promote your book launch, this is the place to do it. There's a deals board where occasionally if I find a really good discount on something for authors, I'll post here. This board doesn't get a lot of posts, but it does around Black Friday. So uh, it's a good one to follow. And there's finally a fun and memes board, which actually is my first one to check because uh, there's a lot of fun writer jokes that get posted there. We also have a private section just for patrons. So if you're a patron, you can unlock the patrons-only lounge at authormedia.social, and you'll find links to do that at patreon.com. Speaking of patrons, I'd like to thank the patrons who joined last month. That includes Alessa Ellefson, S.T. Smith, Angela K. Love, Bridget, Dan Dietz, Haley, Jill Archie, Jody Olson-Collins, Kimberly McGee, Lloyd J. Jessen, Nancy, Parker Hudson, Tammy Burke, and Tim Carter. Thank you so much for your support helping keep this podcast on the air. I really appreciate it. We could not do this without you. The Novel Marketing Podcast is a production of authormedia.com. Audio engineering is by William Umstadt. The blog post is crafted by Shauna Lettler, and you can find that blog version at authormedia.com slash 399. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr. saying thank you for listening and live long and prosper.